Well, if you would, turn to John chapter 3. This is where we are. Uh, 3.22 is the precise location. We looked at a very familiar text last week, and if you didn't get a set of notes, if you weren't here, they're over there, or you can go online and they're available. If you've just joined us, I, I use the Net Bible, the New English Translation. doesn't make it more inspired than another. It's just I like the rendering uh, and the notes. I can cheat as a teacher. I can look at those and look like I can pontificate. But uh, I do like the Net Bible, but uh, again... The ESV, New American Standard, the NIV, there's all some great translations out there. We're going to start in 322. After this, and you immediately should say, what's the this? What just happened? Well, what just happened was a dialogue that Jesus had, remember, with Nicodemus. And we see this in verse 21, but the one who, who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. So we get this uh, dialogue with Nicodemus, and then it moves to 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples came into Judean territory, and there he spent time with them and was baptizing. Now, later, chapter 4, Jesus himself does not baptize, but his entourage does. We'll talk about that in a minute. John was also baptizing at Ainon, or Ainon um, which means springs. Uh, near uh, Salim. Where is this? We don't know. <laughs> uh, probably uh, somewhere in the Jordan, obviously, region. Uh, it says, because water was plentiful there and people were coming to him and being baptized. So you got Jesus over here and they're performing their uh, baptismals that are taking place. John is over here. They're not that far away geographically. And then John, the t you know, remember our author is uh, he's rather omniscient. He gives us these parenthetical statements to kind of fill it in and, and to help us along as a reader. And he says, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Yes. Remember what happens to John. What happens to John? He has a pain in the neck. Yes. He's beheaded. Now a dispute came about between some of John's disciples and certain Jews concerning the ceremonial washing. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, about whom you testified, that's a loaded term in John's gospel, and who's the one he testified to? Jesus, right? He's not the light, he testifies to the light, the text tells us. See, he is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John replied, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This then is my joy and it is complete. He must become more important while I must become less important. What a mission statement. Put that on my tombstone, right? He, Christ, must increase, I must decrease. Well, the one who comes from above is superior to all. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. This one who comes from heaven is superior to all. He just stated that in verse 31, or the first part of 31. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. 
the one who has accepted the testimony has confirmed clearly that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he does not give the Spirit sparingly. The Father loves the Son, not a prophet. He's not a great teacher. He's the Son. And has placed all things under his authority. I think of the book of Hebrews. God has spoken in various ways, etc. And now he has spoken to us through what? A son. It's what makes Jesus superior to Moses. Later, he, the writer of Hebrews states, makes him superior to the angels, Moses, and the prophets, etc. Because Jesus is the son, the high priest and son. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things. Verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3, 16, the one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. It not will be on him, it is on him. We are children of wrath, Ephesians 2. Well, what's going on in this text? This is key in wrapping up this section. In fact, verses 34 well, actually, 31 through 36 has been seen some, by some scholars as not only uh, the climax of chapter 3, but really is this gospel in a nutshell, the gospel of John. So let's unpack this section. In your notes, I mentioned, first you have the disciples, they're questioning Jesus, or at least some Jews are questioning John's uh, disciples, followers, about Jesus concerning purification, ceremonial purification. We really don't know what that is. Uh, text does not unpack that for us. Is it that they weren't washing before meals or, or, or before they worship? We don't know. Um, it doesn't seem to be related to the baptism per se. Some have argued that. Now, remember, baptism is not how, as we know it today in the church, right? First of all, in the, in the first century, all Jews were baptized, uh, on a regular basis. That was the ceremonial cleansing. Uh, they went up to the temple. They were baptized. In fact, if I take you to the Temple Mount today, just south of the Temple Mount, you'll see these tanks. Uh, they are called mikvotes. They are baptismal tanks. And the Siloam pool, the pool of Bethesda, were all used uh, for purification purposes so that when the worshipers went into the temple, they were clean. Homes had mikvotes, a devout Jew, and, and not just in Jerusalem, in the priestly homes. You'd find them up in the north. I can take you to, to Magdala. Uh, they've just discovered several homes with mikvotes, telling us that there was a devout Jewish audience even up in Galilee. So that was a common practice. What was unique with John was he baptized once, right? And what was he doing that for? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It looked to Jesus. The church baptizes to look what Jesus has accomplished. We look at the other side of the cross. All right? uh, the mikvotes, by the way, were not sprinkles. The, you went down under the water and you came back out. Uh, the distinction there as well, it was done. You didn't have a priest or a rabbi standing there baptizing you. But John's different. He's there baptizing people in the early church. The apostles are present at the baptism. So that's a little, also a little distinction there. So what we have is John preparing hearts for the coming one. He is the forerunner. We talked about this, and we'll deal with that a little more here in the text. John addresses his role, though, right away, because this is where it's going, isn't it? You kind of wonder if the religious rulers aren't trying to create a wedge 
between John and Jesus, uh, they're both camps are a threat to the established Jewish faith. <laughs> Remember we talked about this. Where do Pharisees gain their power? From the people. They're the popular group, right? They get the popular vote. The Sadducees we talked about get their power from their purse and their relationship with Rome. Doesn't mean some Pharisees weren't wealthy, but for the most part, it's the Sadducean party that are extremely uh, wealthy, affluent, and very powerful. And so you have these two groups, and, uh, but um, they come to the, John's disciples, they, they create this angst among uh, John's followers, and John quickly jumps in on this, doesn't he, in verse 27. And he's going to respond, he's going to say, listen, I am not, he tells us, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm the forerunner. Did you catch this? All right? Verse 28, you yourselves can testify, said, I am not the Christ. In fact, I've been sent from heaven. I'm not the one that is from heaven. I've been, the one from heaven has sent me to come and to deliver this message. Look at Mark chapter 1. This is so vital. I, I mentioned this before. You can't have a Messiah without a forerunner. It was expected under Old Testament teaching as well as Jewish teaching in the first century. There had to be one who went before in preparation of Jesus. In the first century, one, around 140s, Justin Martyr, an early church father, has a debate with a Jew. It's called the Dialogue with Trypho. You realize one of the major issues arguing that Jesus is the Messiah is, is whether or not there was a forerunner. Did one really come before him? Of course, he highlights John the Baptist. But in Mark chapter 1, all of the gospel writers highlight John's role as a forerunner. I would argue you couldn't have, Jesus could perform his ministry without a forerunner and also the temptation. Because it demonstrated that he clearly is the qualified one. And, and, all, and all of those mention uh, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both highlight those roles. But look at Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. In the wilderness, John the baptizer began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were going out. He was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Verse 6, John wore a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. That is the exact description in the Greek of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. He's the one like Elijah who has come. That Malachi, the Italian prophet Malachi, predicted. Here it is, right? Uh, and he says, and he eats locusts and wild honey. It's diets of a nomadic prophet. And that's his role. He proclaimed, one more powerful than I is coming. And John highlights that in his gospel as well. In fact, he highlights the words from John's own lips in verse 27, as we just saw in chapter 3. No one can receive anything, John the baptizer says, unless it has been given to him from heaven. I am not the Messiah. I am only a forerunner. I am here to introduce you to the Messiah, to prepare the hearts. And what did Malachi say? I'm going to send this messenger to prepare the hearts. And if you don't repent and prepare your hearts for him, 
I will curse the land. And I think Christ took that curse at the cross on our behalf. Because as Jesus said, what you didn't expect to happen to the one like Elijah, the forerunner, that is John, will happen to the Messiah as well. Does this make sense? This is deep theology. We're tying it all together and what's going on here. And what does John say he is? What does he say in verse 29? I'm not the Messiah. I'm a forerunner. And what else does he say he is? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the, the, he's, he is um, the friend of the, of the groom. He's a best man. Thank you. That's the word I want in the text. And he says several things about this being the best man in a wedding, which is very significant. We'll get to this minute. He says, first of all, I have the great honor and joy of doing this. Um, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've performed weddings. People are not usually looking at the best man. <laughs> the bride, yes, everyone sees the bride. They're also looking at the groom and watching whether he can make it through without crying. It's so precious. The eyes are on the couple. The best man and the matron of honors to do what? To elevate those two. Make them look good. Make sure they have everything they need. And in this culture, and this is going to rock your world. I'm glad it's only men today. <laughs> uh, the, the best man was to stand outside and make sure that uh, when they consummate the marriage, the, 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 the groom and the bride... The groom will then shout out if indeed she's a virgin, and the, the best man will say, the party can continue. This is great. What a culture, right? Uh, we'll leave it at that. All right? So it's, it's one of the roles of the best man in the first century. Aren't you glad you didn't have to do that? Speech is enough. When he hears the, because the, here it is, when he hears the bridegroom's voice, and what's he talking about? That's what I just told you, the cultural expectations. He said, this is my joy. That is a loaded term. Joy is associated with the eschaton. Joy is expected in the end. Look at the gospel of Luke. How does it end? The disciples are joyful. How does it start? Look at Luke chapter 1, and in fact, it entails this very person who's talking here in John's gospel. That's the baptizer. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. It wasn't just at the waters that John the baptizer pointed people's eyes to Jesus. He did it even earlier in a womb. Luke chapter 1, you remember the scene, I think. Luke chapter 1 Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 44, the instant the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's the text that Mother Teresa used against Bill Clinton uh, arguing against abortion. <laughs> John in the womb leaped with joy at the presence of Jesus who's in Mary's womb. Powerful text. But what's more powerful? The term for leap. It's a rare term. And it occurs in, of all places, the Italian prophet Malachi. So turn to Malachi. I want you to see this. In the Greek translation of Malachi, this text, this word is utilized. It's Malachi chapter 4. So turn, it's the last book of the Old Testament. That's the good news. 
I get lost in those last books. Chapter 4, verse 2, it says, But for you who respect my name, the Son of Vindication will rise with healing wings, and you will skip about like calves released from the stall. When the day comes and your Lord comes, you will leap like newborn calves. And I believe that the text is here. John leaps in the womb because it's the presence of the Messiah. This is the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here it is. This is your one. And when John says to the crowd, going back to John, so turn back to chapter 3, and he says in verse 29, this is my joy. I know it when I was in the womb, and I know it now. This is our Redeemer. And that makes me excited. Now, if that didn't wake you up, I don't know what will, right? The coffee may not, but that should. That is pretty exciting. He says, listen, I am the Shoshban. I am the, the best man of this w- wedding procession, and I have joy. And if you're, you say, oh, Havaditz, I think you're kind of drawing some strings here that maybe aren't there. This whole wedding o- motif, we've already talked about that. Remember, what's the first miracle? Or when did it occur? At a wedding. And we talked about this. Turn to Isaiah. We talked about this text. Let's look at this. Isaiah 61, I think. I want you to look at this with the whole wedding ceremony. Again, yeah, Isaiah 62. Excuse me. Isaiah 62. Don't miss this. It's not a coincidence that he picked the best man as an image here. Because in Isaiah 62... And we'll look at verses 4 and 5. It says, you will no longer be called uh, abandoned. This is the Lord speaking to his people. Your land will no longer be called desolate. Indeed, you will be, called, you will be my delight. And we'll marry, verse 5. And he says, as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. This whole wedding motif is filled with astrological language. In other words, it's the end. This is your Messiah. This is his kingdom. And here it is. And John says, listen, <laughs> he, he pulls that imagery out and says, I'm a witness to this wedding and, and I am filled with joy. That's very calculated what he's saying. And then one more thing that we see here, he says, I'm in a position to ensure that there is success it's my role, and that's to do this, and that's why I'm not significant. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, you got a successful ministry. I'd be making t-shirts and putting out recordings to sell. He's not doing any of that. In fact, later in Acts, Acts chapter 19, we find followers of John all the way over in modern Turkey at Ephesus. I mean, he had an incredible ministry, but he said, it's not about me. It's about Christ. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. You know we're going to go there for application. Uh, That is so vital. I mentioned there in your notes, John's life in many perspectives might appear worthless. He led a nomadic life. He exhibited eccentric behavior. He maintained an unusual diet, wore odd apparel, and delivered an offensive message. I mean, he could have been a priest like his daddy, Zaki, but he wasn't. Unfortunately, he winds up in prison and then beheaded. And yet, His life yielded dividends no money market or stock option could ever match. Right? I quote it later in your notes. Howard Hendricks, a dear friend, often would say, listen, you want to have an effective ministry on this earth? It has a very high price tag. But it's worth every penny. (laughs) 
It's worth every penny. One of, uh, I think, one of the greats of the faith is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've not read this little book, The Cost of Discipleship, you should. It's excellent. The first half is better than the second, but it's a great book, right? Excellent. Bonhoeffer, if you're saying, who is this guy? Uh, he was executed one month before the war was over in the European front. He, uh, along with others, tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler. They spoke out against the atrocities of the Nazi regime. Uh, and he states in The Cost of Discipleship, self-denial is never just a series of isolated acts of mortification. He said, to deny oneself is to beware of only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. Right? It's John. <laughs> he must increase, I must decrease. It's not about Hophetus. It's not about Page. Even how wonderful he is. Uh, it's about Christ, right? That's what it's about. And Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship, he just highlights that so well. And John is, is demonstrating that here in the text. Questions or comments? Powerful. Again, scrawl that verse on your, I don't know, on your mirror. I don't know. Put it, put it somewhere. John 3.30. Well, he tells, John tells us what his role is, and then he clarifies Jesus' role. What does he say about Jesus here in verses 31 through 36? We've got some time and space. What's he say about Jesus? Let's just make a list. Help us out. I'm sorry? He comes from God. He's the Son. Good. Comes from God. He is God. He's above all. Yeah. He bears witness. Yeah. Eternal life. What? God does not give him the spirit by measure. It's the whole spirit. Yep. The role of the involvement of the spirit. John can testify to that one. He takes the wrath. Truthful. In many ways, this is why scholars are saying these verses really embody the entire gospel. All of this is woven through the entire tapestry, isn't it, of the narrative. After all, Jesus said, I am the truth, or the way, the truth, and the life. You just mentioned all of those here on this board. So that's, what, that's who I am. And John, he, he, he directs the attention to this one Jesus, and he lists these. I mean, he mentions twice that he's superior to all. Twice he mentions he's above all. And, and, and John is highlighting this, and I, I mentioned this in your notes. In fact, he says in verse 33, the one who has accepted his testimony has confirmed clearly. 
It's an interesting term, phrase, and I mentioned this in your notes. It literally means marked with a seal, their seal, attesting to the validity of the documents which is attached. Yeah, kind of like a notary. Because it says those who receive Jesus confirm the validity of not Jesus, but who? God. He's testifying to this. You've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. And so John is testifying to Jesus. Jesus is testifying to the Father. And the Father will testify via the Spirit of the Son. That's why witness or testimony is so vital to John's gospel as we're going to see. One commentator writes, to not believe in the Son of God is to deny God himself and to make God a liar. What does verse 33 say? It's confirmed clearly that God is truthful. There it is, right? He's true. And so if you don't accept this, then you're saying God is a liar. John does not give any gray area. <laughs> John is it's always black and white. Think about 1 John, right? You either love God or you hate him, but there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Yeah. Yes. That's right. To verify the truth. Yep. Good. Thank you, Rick. That's, yes, spot on. You're right. And, and Michaels mentions this in his commentary, and you can look at that. To believe is to say that God is truthful, and that is what grants one eternal life. It's interesting, if you compare, and this is not in your notes, and this is extra, you didn't have to pay for this part, uh, but it's very interesting, if you want some, something to do this afternoon, is to compare the earlier part of chapter 3 with the latter part here of 3. There's several connections. So the dialogue with Nicodemus is reiterated here at the end of chapter 3. And to me, that's rather profound, but that's because I have nothing better to do. But if you have time, feel free, compare, look at what's going on in chapter 3. Well, so what? What do we do with all this, Hophetitz? Let me give you a couple things to hang on your beak as you go today. Uh, Letter A under note, service to the Lord allows us to be a great blessing to others. I mean, think about John. I mean, it's unconventional, his practice. It's unimpressive, and it actually is insulting to many. John's message, just ask Herodias and Herod Antipas, right? And yet, because he's willing to be a messenger for God, God uses him mightily. I mentioned that in your notes. The promise of John's birth and in Zechariah's song of praise, John functioned as a prophet of the Most High. It's no wonder Jesus will declare John the greatest born among women. Why is he the greatest born among women? Because he has the opportunity to herald, to serve as the messenger of the coming of the Messiah. We must be careful, I mentioned in your notes, not to base our value to the Lord's work on our giftedness, appearance, marital status, etc. F.B. Meyer writes, use what you have, the... The five barley loaves, two small fishes will so increase, so they are distributed that they will supply the want of thousands. Do not dare to envy more successful and used than yourself, lest you be convicted of murmuring against the appointment of the Lord. You don't, thankfully, you don't have to eat locusts and wild honey to be a blessing to others. 
That's not what God has called us to do, but he has called us to serve. And the blessing of being that to others. You know, it's interesting, Bonhoeffer, the minister that I just exposed you to, who later uh, is executed, uh, a lot of people don't know this, he was in, he, he escaped to England, and he could have had a ticket over to the U.S., and he would have been safe and lived through the war. While in London, the great theologian Karl Barth wrote him a letter. I want you to listen to this. This is in the 1930s. We mentioned this. Several months after being in England, Karl Barth wrote him a note. Encouraging Bonhoeffer to fulfill his duty in Germany, he writes, Well, is, what is all this about going away and quietness of pastoral work in a moment when you're wanted in Germany? You who know as well as I do the opposition in Berlin and the opposition of the church in Germany as a whole stand inwardly on such weak feet. I think that I can see from your letter that like that you, like all of us, yes, all of us are suffering under the quite common difficulty to make certain steps in the present chaos. One simply cannot become weary now, still less one can go to England. You must now leave Go to all those intellectual flourishes and special considerations, however interesting they may be, and think of only one thing, you are a German, that the house of your church is on fire, that you know enough to be able to help, and that you must return to your post by the next ship. Woo! He got spanked. We're not in a holocaust but the church is not leading the way. <laughs> We're in a difficult days in this country. And I love it that there's 70 men gathered here on this morning. My prayer is that God creates a revival here. The church is on fire. We need men who will stand in the gap in the home, in the workplace, in the public square. We need people who will serve. Listen, John knew full well that he was upsetting the cart. And yet he will say to one of the most powerful men of that day, Herod Antipas, you're a sinner, and what you're doing is wrong. And this is the message from the Lord. Whew. You don't do that to the Herodian dynasty. <laughs> and they did exactly what you would expect. They took his life. And John said, it doesn't, about, it doesn't matter, because it's not about me. <laughs> it's about Christ. Reminded of Paul's words in Acts chapter 20. Remember with the elders at Ephesus? I mean, here's Paul who has everything humanly you could ever want. A Roman citizen. He could have been in the member of the Sanhedrin. It was very powerful, influential. He chucks it all and he says, I counted all loss for the cause of Christ. There it is. Why are you doing what you're doing? There's nothing wrong with being in a secular world. In fact, it's fantastic. We need godly contractors. We need godly businessmen. We need godly lawyers. Is that possible? No. Uh, uh, we need men serving the Lord and taking a stand. And, 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 and the blessing that comes to others. But you know what? There's also a personal benefit as well. Serving God. I'm getting on a soapbox, so I'll move. Serving Jesus grants blessing in the present. Colossians 1. Turn to Colossians 1. This is such a great text. Paul's writing to a church he's never been to. It's only from hearing about how they're doing, et cetera, that he pins the letter. 
And he says in verses 9 through 14, For this reason we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, giving thanks to the Father. He has delivered us, verse 13, from the power of darkness and transformed us in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What blessing, right? Serving the Lord and the blessings that come. This, that's why John the Baptist will say there in verse 29 of chapter 3, my joy is complete. <laughs> this is great. I have the opportunity to serve Jesus. So, yeah, you, you who follow me, you need to go follow him. And that's exactly what happens, right? His own followers go, go over to Jesus. Swindoll, this is the top of page three of your notes, and in the book, Improving Your Serve, says, we humans are impressed with size and volume and numbers. It's easy to forget that God's eye is always on motive, authenticity, the real truth beneath the surface, never the external splash. The dear older lady who prays will be rewarded as much as the evangelist who preaches to thousands. The quiet friend who assists another in need will be rewarded as much as the strong natural leader whose gifts are more visible. So don't short change yourself, right? You say, well, I'm not a Swindoll or a Billy Sunday or a Billy Graham or a Charles Spurgeon. That's okay. That's not what God's asked. God's asked you to be you and how he's gifted and wired you for his glory. And the blessings that come in this life are amazing, but it continues because serving the Lord also grants blessings in the future, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you know the text. The things that cannot be seen is what we're looking forward to. The blessings that come. I called a lady in our Sunday school class. She's 98. She's having hip replacement. It's crazy. Um, I was talking to her on the phone, and, and she said, you know what? My prayer is right now that I would just glorify God. And she said, it doesn't matter. She said, the best thing that could happen is if I don't make it out through the surgery, because I'm in the presence of my Lord. But if I survive, great. Then I can testify He is still a great God, and I am His. Now, that's a John the Baptist. That's one who understands. Blessings come from serving the Lord and exalting Him. And it's not just for this life. It's also in the future. Oh, wow. All right? I pray I, I can end well like that. And one more. Serving Jesus results in participating in the ultimate blessing, and that is to be united with our Lord. What a day, Right? What a day. Philippians chapter 3. We'll close with this text. Philippians chapter 3. A book that talks a lot about joy. <laughs> 320 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. We await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body by means of that power. And some are going to need more transformation than others, but we got it. By which He is able to subject all things to Himself. What a day, right? That's what I talked with uh, Lady Margaret yesterday over the phone. I said, what a day that'll be, right? When we will be in the presence of our Savior. And the opportunity to say, I, my goal in life was that you would be increased. 
and I would decrease. Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary, you many know her husband, Jim Elliot, who died as a martyr, penned these words at the bottom of your notes. We are not meant to die merely in order to be dead. God could not want that for the creatures to whom he has given the breath of life. We die in order to live. Isn't that great? He must increase. I must decrease. It's not about us. Wow. What a text, right? <laughs> Comments, questions, cries of outrage. Yes. Turn to Matthew 11. We got to end here because this is a great question. Yep, I'm going to do Matthew. If you, it's in Luke 2, but we'll turn to Matthew 11. <laughs> yes, I knew someone was going to ask this question. And actually, it's, it's marvelous. Uh, all right, thank you. John the Baptist um, and Jesus, well, John's followers have a, a, a question from John. John sends from prison some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the coming one? And you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. He should have known that. Yeah, well, remember, he's about to have his head severed, all right? And he's going, well, wait a minute. This isn't what I expected. If you're the Messiah, you're going to overthrow Rome, and this is it. And, and Jesus says, he explains, listen, I am the coming one, and he mentions his credentials. And then he says, and this is in Matthew 11, 11. It's one of the most difficult texts in all of the New Testament. I should have my scholars in the room uh, interject here. Verse 11, it says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John. Right? We talked about that. Why? What's his role? To introduce the world, humanity to Christ, the Messiah. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean by that? I would argue John is not on this side of the cross where we are. Permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, a relationship with the Lord that's very unique. That's awesome. You say, oh, I wish I could have been John and introduced the world to Christ. You have that opportunity. In fact, it's even greater to introduce the world to Christ because you have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, this text goes on to say, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and forceful people lay hold of it. This can be rendered several ways, but I think what's going on here, what he's saying is, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John appeared, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah. I think what Jesus is saying is, the kingdom was being offered through John, it was not accepted, and they are going to behead John, and they're going to, the messenger, and they're going to destroy the one that he announced, which is the Messiah. But we have the privilege of serving the Savior in a uniqueness that John longed for. Right? And I think that's what he's talking about. He, I'm going to say it again, quoting John, must increase and I must decrease. Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> You, you weave this theology together, the motif of a, a wedding, the idea of a forerunner, one like Elijah, and all this comes crashing in. And, and, and yes, on one level, theologically, it's, it's, it's spectacular. But on another level, there's such a practical side to this. It's not about us. <laughs> Who has known the mind of the Lord? 
And as John, with all his, you can just see it, throngs of people gathered around him. He's doing his baptism thing, etc. And he looks and sees Jesus. He says, no, this is the one. And it's not about me. You can imagine what all those people standing around are thinking. John doesn't care. Lord, help us to point people to Christ. Help us to be faithful servants. And the blessings that come, may we not lose sight of those. There is joy in serving Jesus, as the old hymn says, and indeed there is. We die in order to live. May we die to self, and may we, like Paul, say, I count it all loss for the cause of Christ. Thank you for your word. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.